Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's June and we're celebrating National Ocean Month and kicking off the first of four special reports. We talk exclusively to Demi Fox of NOAA about their marine debris program and why it's so important to keep our oceans clean. Plus we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Brian Scott Smith. The month of June marks National Ocean Month, an event championed in this country by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or better known as NOAA, and their National Ocean Service. For the next four episodes of Connecticut East this week throughout June, we'll be looking at a different Ocean Month-related story to help bring more awareness to this amazing and essential life-giving resource on our planet, which covers 70% of the Earth's surface and includes over 96% of the Earth's water. But like everything, the oceans need protecting, and as a civilization, we need to do better to reduce our impact on the world's oceans and the pollution we inflict on them. Small changes in our lifestyles can make a big difference, and I caught up with Demi Fox of NOAA's Marine Debris Program to find out more. So joining me is Demi Fox from NOAA. Demi, thanks for joining us. Hi, so nice to meet you. So an important month, not just for NOAA, but really for the oceans, because it's Ocean Month. Explain to us a little bit about Ocean Month and NOAA's getting behind that. Ocean Month is a great time for all of us to celebrate the world's ocean and reflect on how we can better protect it. On World Ocean Day and throughout the whole month of June, we can raise awareness about the threats our ocean faces and pause to think more critically about how our everyday activities impact the coastal and marine environments on which we depend for our livelihoods, our food, the biodiversity of the planet, and even the air we breathe. Talk to us a little bit specifically about your role, because, you know, when I was doing the research for this, Noah came back and said, hey, you know, we've got lots of things. And they came up with this, what I consider to be slightly unusual. I've never heard of this before. I mean, I know there's debris in our oceans, but you are part of the Marine Debris Program, which is fascinating. Talk to us about that. That's right. The Marine Debris Program is the U.S. federal government's lead for addressing marine debris. We work under six main pillars. Those are prevention, removal, research, monitoring and detection, response, and coordination. And that's sort of where I come in. I'm the Northeast Regional Coordinator, so I work with partners in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island to oversee the grants that the Marine Debris Program awards in the region, implement cooperative marine debris action plans, and assist with prevention and removal efforts across all five states. And there are 10 more people in the Marine Debris Program who have the same job as me, but they sit in different regions around the country to do the same sort of work with their partners. Talk to us about why this is so important, because clearly, you know, this department was created for a reason. Why was it so important for NOAA to have this department? Marine debris is one of the biggest threats that our ocean faces, and 
it impacts lots of different subjects of marine conservation. So fisheries, transportation, navigation, tourism, economy, it has an impact on lots of things that make the ocean important to us. So it's really important that we do our best to address it, work with the communities in our regions to find solutions. Talk to us about, you know, what constitutes marine debris, because it sounds like an obvious question, but I'm guessing it's quite open-ended, really. That's right. So this is a bit of a mouthful, but marine debris is defined as any persistent solid material that is manufactured or processed and directly or indirectly, intentionally or unintentionally disposed of or abandoned into the marine environment or Great Lakes. So anything human-made and solid that can become marine debris once it's lost or littered into these environments. Give us a sense, if you would, of what maybe some of the more common, you know, marine debris is, because I'm guessing there's plenty. I, you know, I'm not saying if you've got like a top 10, but, you know, give us a sense of, of what some of this, what some of the bigger marine debris issues are. Sure. So we see a lot of what you might expect, the single use plastic items like water bottles, bottle caps, plastic straws and coffee cups. Cigarette butts are always near the top of the list during every beach cleanup, and they have been for a very long time. And we also see bigger debris types like derelict fishing gear, gear that's been lost in the environment after a storm or after an interaction with another part of the fishery. It washes up on beaches and remains on the seafloor sometimes. So give us a sense of how it gets there, because I'm, I'm guessing there's multiple ways that it can actually get into our oceans. Just talk us through some of those, if you would. Sure. So lots of debris is kind of lost through the storm drains and wastewater runoff. So if for example, you accidentally lose a bottle cap on the street while you're walking through the city and then there's a big rain, it could wash down a sewer and then end up in our marine environments. Of course, there's also the potential for littering directly into the marine environments. And then there's sort of the storm circumstances, like I was saying, with some of our derelict fishing gear or even abandoned and derelict vessels and boats that we see, hurricanes, or here in New England, we have nor'easters that a lot of times blow things that shouldn't be in the marine environment into the marine environment. That's interesting you say that because we don't necessarily think about it. I mean, storms are devastating or can be devastating, not only on the uh, environment, but obviously for us as human beings as well, if they are strong enough. And yeah, I mean, you don't think about when you see those pictures in the media of the land scattered with trash buildings, that, of course, it, it gets carried further away, doesn't it? That's right. Talk to us, if you would, about the concerns that NOAA has, because, you know, you as you say, you partner with, with five states in New England, work with other organisations. You know, what are some of the big challenges, you know, really that, uh, that are facing you that to deal with on a, you know, a regular basis? Sure. I think coordinating across the region and across different regions themselves is really important for us. And it's one of the challenges that we're always thinking about how we can have our partners work more closely together so that we're working towards common solutions. If someone finds a great solution to a marine debris problem in Maine, I want to make sure that those partners are connected to partners in Connecticut and Rhode Island and that we're all sharing information and lessons learned. Yeah, because I mean, we all share common waters and ultimately this stuff can circulate uh, around. I'm guessing this is quite a challenging role. Yes, it is. It's a challenging role, but it's a very good challenge. One way that we are lucky, I guess, is that marine debris is definitely a human-caused problem, and it has human solutions. So we are responsible for, for finding those and making sure that we can implement them in our marine environments. 
may sound a little bit of a daft question. I mean, we are becoming more, I think, as as a culture, environmentally conscious. But do you find that we fully understand our actions and, and what we're actually doing any better? Or, or have we got worse from that point of view? Because, you know, trash seems to be appearing everywhere. And certainly you're dealing with it, obviously, in our oceans and trying to keep those clean. I mean, are, are we getting the message or are we still sort of like struggling with this? Yeah, I think we I think in general, we are are getting the message. I think there's been a lot of movement in recent years to switch to reusable items or to bring your own water bottle and bring your own straw and refuse those single-use plastics where you can. I think it is challenging to think of viable solutions in a lot of different fields where we really do rely on plastics to kind of make our lives easier and, and more convenient. And it can be hard to think about ways to replace those and reduce the amount of waste that we're producing. But I think we are generally on a good path of of raising that awareness and changing our behaviors to reduce the amount of waste that we're producing. Can you give us maybe a little bit of insight into maybe some of the projects in the perhaps the Connecticut, Eastern Long Island, Long Island Sound sort of area at all that may be new or are enduring because obviously, you know, trash just doesn't disappear. And as we were saying, it, it cycles around. I mean, it can come from all sorts of places. But can you give us a little bit of insight into maybe some of these projects? Sure. So the first one that comes to mind is the Long Island Sound Marine Debris Action Plan. I mentioned that part of our job as regional coordinators for the Marine Debris Program is to develop these collaborative action plans with partners in our region. So in 2022, the Long Island Sound Marine Debris Action Plan was created. It's a comprehensive framework of strategic actions to mitigate the impacts of marine debris on Long Island Sound. And it was a bi-state effort that was led by the folks at Connecticut and New York Sea Grants under the guidance of the NOAA Marine Debris Program. And it was co-developed over a two-year period in collaboration with lots of different entities in those two states. And it encompasses work that will be undertaken over five years from 2022 to 2027. And a few examples of the actions that are included within that plan are things like hosting events that promote source reduction of common consumer debris items, including single-use plastics, to identify and share methods to properly dispose of -of end-of-life fishing and aquaculture gear, and to promote opportunities and engage with interested organizations to develop microplastics and microfiber monitoring programs in Long Island Sound. You talked about the fishing industry. Obviously, they're a very important industry. I mean, they help to feed us. But you also made the point that, you know, some of their stuff can end up becoming debris as well. How do you sort of like help educate and work with them on that? Because like I said, it's the oceans are unpredictable and, and you know, and things can get lost, etc. So what sorts of things do you do to work with obviously the fishing industry to try and help them with regards to making sure that they minimize, you know, debris left behind in the oceans? I think all of the fishermen that we work with are, of course, not interested in losing their gear, right? That's not in their best intention. It's expensive to replace that gear, and the gear that they lose can sometimes continue fishing in the ocean, which takes away catch that is viable to their livelihoods. So no fisherman is interested in losing their gear, and often they're a huge component that helps with our cleanup efforts. So many of the projects that the Marine Debris Program funds employs fishermen to help us go out on the water and retrieve gear that's been lost with special permits from the state. 
because they, of all of the people we could work with, are the ones who know how to handle the gear, they know how to store it, and they know where it is because they're out in that environment every day. So they are critical in cleanup efforts, and they're also critical in telling us what the real issues are and how we can work towards solutions so that they're losing less gear in the first place. Yeah, I was going to say, I wondered how talkative they were about that, because as I say, these topics can sometimes be sensitive, but at the end of the day, they have to be talked about and it is their industry. So it's it's interesting you say that they are actually quite willing to to talk to you and, and uh, I don't know, maybe to give that sort of feedback to organisations like NOAA as well to see, you know, how you can jointly help each other. We're talking clearly here about marine debris. One of the most famous patches is, of course, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which we all know about because it's probably got the most publicity But I mean, patches like this exist everywhere, don't they? It's not just in the Pacific Ocean. That's right. So that is just one gyre in a system of ocean gyres that sort of swirls in the currents and can collect marine debris in those gyres. Is NOAA able to to look into those or do you look into those? And, And how do you deal with situations like that? Because these things are often further out to sea, aren't they? So can you give us a sense of do you monitor them? Just talk to us a little bit about some of these bigger garbage patches. So the garbage patch or the the Pacific dryer is really hard to access. It would take a lot of time and a lot of fuel for a boat to get out to the Pacific gyre. And once you're there, it's nearly impossible to sort of clean up. I think a lot of people have this picture in their mind that it's this floating island of trash that we could go scoop up in nets and bring back to shore to dispose of it. But in reality, a lot of the debris is breaking up into tinier and tinier pieces over time with the sun and wave action and becoming what we call microplastics or plastics that are about the size of a pencil eraser or smaller. And they become sort of integrated into the marine environment. Organisms are living among them, they're living on top of them, and we couldn't just go and sort of scoop them out. It's a really complicated and it would be really costly and costly in time and money. So we do have partners that are working in those areas, of course, but the projects that the Marine Debris Program funds itself tend to be a little bit closer to shore in areas that we can access and remove debris a little bit more feasibly. I just wanted to touch on the microplastics thing because it seems to, obviously it's been around for a long time, but it's a topic which seems relatively new to us. Do people understand that when they throw plastic trash out that it just doesn't break down harmlessly, that it does cause this this situation, which ultimately has an impact on us as well, not just obviously the the environment and the animals, the fish, etc., that live in the environment. But I mean, it goes full circle and it comes back ultimately to us, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah. And I think people are becoming more aware of the microplastics in the environment. As soon as you visit a beach, you can start to see the colorful pieces of plastic that might be strewn within the sand. And I was just at a cleanup a few weeks ago and I went to remove, it was a milk jug, a plastic milk jug. And it had been sitting there clearly for so long that when I touched it to try to remove it, it just shattered into a million pieces. And of course, I couldn't capture all of the tiny plastic pieces that I created. So I think it's really important to recognize how these materials behave in the natural environment over time, and that they are just 
they just continue to persist and they're really hard to clean up. Is part of Noah's job as well to advocate maybe for change? I mean, you're doing all this great work, obviously, with the Marine Debris Programme and the other programmes that you have. Is is part of your job as well to try and help advocate for maybe changes in the law and try and get things like some of this plastic waste stopped from even getting into the environment by saying, hey, you know, maybe we can find another way to, you know, store products or when we buy something, instead of it being in a plastic container, it's maybe in something else. Is that also part of of NOAA's remit is to advocate for change? Well, as a federal government agency, we can't advocate for policy change ourselves. But what we can do is work with all of our partners in our regions to better understand the marine debris problems, the specific problems in specific communities are facing, and then try to work towards solutions with them. We've said you work for NOAA. NOAA is probably more famously known for giving out the weather statistics. Are people surprised that NOAA actually goes much deeper than that? I mean, obviously the weather is important and this is weather sort of related, but are they surprised that NOAA has all of these different types of programs you know, or obviously essential? Yes, I think so. I think you're right. NOAA is probably best known for the weather service, but NOAA has so many different other divisions and we are studying the ocean and atmosphere from the seafloor all the way up into atmospheric science. So the part of NOAA that that I work for under the Marine Debris Program is called the National Ocean Service. And we do all sorts of work to better understand how we can protect our marine environments. So, of course, the question is, you guys are doing great work out there. But of course, we can always help. You know, the public at large can always help. What are some of the things that you can maybe advise us or that maybe you do advise people that they can do to help the situation with regards to certainly, you know, the marine debris that ultimately finds its way sadly into our oceans. Yeah, I think in general, actions that reduce and properly dispose of waste will help shift communities toward a culture of sustainability and ultimately create less marine debris. And the way that I think is most effective to tackle that is through small steps. If you think about one single use item that you use every day, try replacing it with something reusable. And if that works for you in your life, try another thing. I think it can be really easy to become overwhelmed in thinking about trying to eliminate plastics from your life altogether. But if we can focus on one tiny step at a time, it can really make a huge difference. And eventually, we will eliminate a lot of the plastics from our lives. What other messages would you like to give out to the public, you know, for this ocean month? Because as we said, it is important. Noah is behind this. What other sort of messages can we like give to our listeners that maybe they can do their part? Because like I said, at the end of the day, you're doing what you can, but we can always do a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's really important when you start learning more about marine debris and sort of the scope of this problem across the globe, it can be really easy to feel hopeless and that we're already too far gone. There's already too much waste and we can't do anything about it. But I don't think that's the case. I think that we do have solutions. There are lots and lots of people who have dedicated their lives and careers to making sure that we can clean it up and prevent it from being there in the future. So as we learn more about the types of debris that we're facing, we're also learning more about the people and the science and the solutions that we're coming up with. So it's not all hopeless. We still can can clean it up and make a better environment for our future. I think that's a, a nice way to end this interview because I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, we sometimes look at pictures that we see in the media, etc. And again, I think you're absolutely right. People feel like, well, 
you know, what what can I do? But the reality is we can do things and and it certainly isn't hopeless. And as I say, knowing that organizations like NOAA, the Marine Debris Program and all the other programs behind NOAA are there helping to make sure that our environment stays as clean and pristine as possible. Is there any slight website that people can go to at all, Demi, if they want to find out more information? Yes. Our website is marinedebris.noaa.gov. Well, that's a nice, easy one to remember. Demi Fox of NOAA's Marine Debris Program. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you for educating us on one division, obviously, of the Ocean Service of NOAA. And we'll all hopefully try to do our little bit, as you say, to, uh, you know, look at something in our life and maybe see if we can find an alternative. And maybe over the course of many years, we can all help to reduce the amount of this debris that finds its way into our oceans. And thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And if you want to find out more about the Marine Debris Programme at NOAA, that website again is simply marinedebris.noaa.gov. love cookies so you are going to love the ark's golden chip giveaway find the golden chip and select the bags of the ark eastern connecticut's classic crunch chocolate chip cookies and win a free platter of cookies visit the arkect.com to find a cookie retailer near you and how eating our cookies support jobs for people with disabilities visit our cookie factory at 22 route 171 in woodstock connecticut golden chips may be hiding in bags there too get buying start winning it's mulch season, so come and visit Green Valley Tree LLC. We have a variety of colors for all your landscaping needs. Buy as much or as little as you want. Pick it up or we can deliver to your door. Call Green Valley Tree LLC for all your mulch, plant health care, and tree service needs at 860-234-4041. We are family-owned and fully licensed. Dreaming of a brighter future? Want to take classes but can't find the time? EastCon's adult programs offer free classes and training programs that work with even the busiest schedule. Classes are flexible and designed to support you when you are available, even if your schedule changes every week. If you want to earn your high school diploma, improve your English, prepare for American citizenship, or explore career training options, EastCon is here for you. We offer free in-person and online classes. Go to eastcon.org and click on Adult and Community Programs. Get started today. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week, sponsored by... For over 35 years, Eastern Connecticut Hematology and Oncology, or ECHO, has served as the leading independent cancer care provider in Eastern Connecticut. We believe cancer care belongs in your community, giving you higher quality at a lower cost, a team that treats you as a person, not a number, access to the latest clinical trials, and all the services you need in one convenient location. To learn more, visit echoassociates.org. Another $50 million. That's how much it will cost to finish the State Pier project in New London, according to a recent Port Authority special board members meeting. The controversial project to turn the State Pier into a hub for offshore wind is now millions of dollars over budget and behind schedule. At the special meeting, the interim executive director of the Port Authority, Ulysses Hammond, revealed the new final costs to the Port Authority members, stating they would require $47 million to complete the project, on which half that cost will be met by the project's partners, Orsted and Eversource, with the other half coming from the state. 
David Kouros, the chair of the Port Authority, also added they would be seeking an additional $6 million as well as a contingency for any other unforeseen issues. The project started at $93 million and has risen steadily to $255.5 million recently due to redesign work and also because of underwater obstructions and issues at the pier. This latest tranche of money is said to be the final amount to bring the project to conclusion later this year. But the Connecticut Port Authority has stated this previously to the Bond Commission for the state of Connecticut, this same message, and then found themselves and the project needing more money again. Also, one of the project's partners, Eversource, has recently announced they will be divesting their interest in all offshore wind activities as the company moves more towards the power transmission side. Eversource will sell their 50% interest in offshore wind projects back to Orsted for over $600 million, which includes their interest in all port facilities, such as State Pier in New London. The City of New London has unveiled future economic development in the city at an economic forum recently at the city's Guard Arts Centre. The city, which is one of the poorest municipalities in the state, has been undergoing a renaissance over the past few years and during the COVID pandemic. Mike Passero is the Mayor of New London and said the city is finally getting the investment it needs to grow. Private developers are investing here because they realise they can get a return on their investment. That wasn't the case for many, many years, as investment in the city was sluggish, non-existent. While my belief in New London is rooted in the passion of a New London kid, theirs is rooted in research and statistics. Finally, we've got the formula right. Daring to believe has attracted investment. Felix Reyes is the city's Director of Economic Development and Planning and said one of the biggest projects of his career to date is bringing a long-awaited community centre to the city. 58,000 square feet of recreational space. Rec department will have a brand new office, basketball courts, swimming pool. You know what's crazy is that uh, these kids in New London, they live on the water, but 90% of them don't even know how to swim. That really hurts. These are the amenities these children deserve. The city also talked up investment in market rate and affordable housing being built in the city to help house new employees for local businesses like Electric Boat, who are looking to add 5,000 new employees in 2023 alone, as well as State Pier that will become a hub for offshore wind, bringing jobs to the city and the region later this year. Connecticut's General Assembly is considering legislation that would end the use of certain types of pesticides in the state. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service reports. Senate Bills 962 and 963 aim to restrict the use of second-generation anticoagulant rodenticides and neonicotinoids to protect wildlife populations. According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, second-generation rodenticides pose greater risks to non-targeted species when they're used. And Gadwa with the Sierra Club of Connecticut points out that there are alternatives to these chemicals. So there's first-generation anticoagulant rodenticides that people can use. There's a form of rat birth control that people can use, so it kind of keeps the population down, because that's sort of the problem, right, is that they reproduce very quickly. She adds traditional methods from cats to non-poisonous traps are alternatives less harmful to the environment. While the bill has wide-ranging support, it did receive some opposition at a public hearing, predominantly from pest control professionals. Since they're trained to use these chemicals, they feel banning them entirely is going too far. Currently, the bill is tabled for the calendar in the state Senate. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. 
And parents in New York and across the entire U.S. want to see schools work to improve their children's mental health, a recent study has found. Here's Edwin J. Vieira again with this report. The National PTA survey finds 72% of parents support schools providing mental health services for students. New York's recently passed 2024 budget allocates $50 million to expand mental health services for school-aged children and to fund school-based mental health services. At a National PTA town hall, Dr. Kathleen Ethier with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said communication between schools and families is key to improving youth mental health. Parents can really increase schools' understanding of challenges facing students, identify potential gaps, in support, act as champions as needed for school-based services and supports. But that's really why it's so important to strengthen those positive relationships between schools and families. She says this broadens the community of support for students, which can't come soon enough for New York. The CDC's 2023 Youth Risk Behavior Survey finds poor mental health and suicidality in students increased between 2011 and 2021. In the same period, almost 60% of female students and nearly 70% of LGBT plus students reported feelings of sadness or hopelessness. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms, on demand, and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.